This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Mark Bradford. Childhood by Leo Tolstoy. Chapter 13 Natalia Savishna. In days gone by, there used to run about the seigneurial courtyard of the country house at Chabarovska a girl called Natashka. She always wore a cotton dress, went barefooted, and was rosy, plump, and gay. It was at the request and entreaties of her father, the clarionet player Savi, that my grandfather had taken her upstairs, that is to say, made her one of his wife's female servants. As chambermaid, Natashka so distinguished herself by her zeal and amiable temper, that when Mama arrived as a baby and required a nurse, Natashka was honoured with the charge of her. In this new office the girl earned still further praises and rewards for her activity, trustworthiness, and devotion to her young mistress. Soon, however, the powdered head and buckled shoes of the young and active footman Foka who had frequent opportunities of courting her, since they were in the same service, captivated her unsophisticated but loving heart. At last she ventured to go and ask my grandfather if she might marry Foka, but her master took the request in bad part, flew into a passion, and punished poor Natashka by exiling her to a farm which he owned in a remote quarter of the steppes. At length, when she had been gone six months and nobody could be found to replace her, she was recalled to her former duties. Returned, and with her dress in rags, she fell at Grandpapa's feet and besought him to restore her his favour and kindness, and to forget the folly of which she had been guilty, folly which, she assured him, should never recur again. And she kept her word. From that time forth she called herself, not Natashka, but Natalia Savishna, and took to wearing a cap. All the love in her heart was now bestowed upon her young charge. When Mama had a governess appointed for her education, Natalia was awarded the keys as housekeeper, and henceforth had the linen and provisions under her care. These new duties she fulfilled with equal fidelity and zeal. She lived only for her master's advantage. Everything in which she could detect fraud, extravagance, or waste, she endeavoured to remedy to the best of her power. When Mama married and wished in some way to reward Natalia Savishna for her twenty years of care and labour, she sent for her, and, voicing in the tenderest terms her attachment and love, presented her with a stamped charter of her, Natalia's, freedom. It will be remembered that this was in the days of serfdom. Telling her at the same time that, whether she continued to serve in the household or not, she should always receive an annual pension of three hundred roubles. Natalia listened in silence to this. Then, taking the document in her hands and regarding it with a frown, she muttered something between her teeth and darted from the room, slamming the door behind her. Not understanding the reason for such strange conduct, Mama followed her presently to her room, and found her sitting with streaming eyes on her trunk, crushing her pocket-handkerchief between her fingers, and looking mournfully at the remains of the document, which was lying torn to pieces on the floor. 
"'What is the matter, dear Natalia Savishna?' said Mamma, taking her hand. "'Nothing, ma'am,' she replied. "'Only, only, I must have displeased you somehow, since you wished to dismiss me from the house. Well, I will go.' She withdrew her hand, and, with difficulty restraining her tears, rose to leave the room. But Mamma stopped her, and they wept a while in one another's arms.' Ever since I can remember anything, I can remember Natalia Savishna and her love and tenderness. Yet only now have I learnt to appreciate them at their full value. In early days it never occurred to me to think what a rare and wonderful being this old domestic was. Not only did she never talk, but she seemed never even to think of herself. Her whole life was compounded of love and self-sacrifice. Yet so used was I to her affection and singleness of heart that I could not picture things otherwise. I never thought of thanking her, or of asking myself, Is she also happy? Is she also contented? Often, on some pretext or another, I would leave my lessons and run to her room, where, sitting down, I would begin to muse aloud as though she were not there. She was forever mending something, or tidying the shelves which lined her room, or marking linen, so that she took no heed of the nonsense which I talked, how that I meant to become a general, to marry a beautiful woman, to buy a chestnut horse, to build myself a house of glass, to invite Karl Ivanitch's relatives to come and visit me from Saxony, and so forth, to all of which she would only reply, Yes, my love, yes. Then, on my rising, and preparing to go, she would open a blue trunk which had pasted on the inside of its lid a coloured picture of a hussar which had once adorned a pomade bottle and a sketch made by Woloda and take from it a fumigation pastille which she would light and shake for my benefit, saying, These, dear, are the pastilles which your grandfather, now in heaven, brought back from Otschakoff after fighting against the Turks. Then she would add with a sigh, But this is nearly the last one. The trunks which filled her room seemed to contain almost everything in the world. Whenever anything was wanted, people said, Oh, go and ask Natalia Savishna for it, and, sure enough, it was seldom that she did not produce the object required and say, See what comes of taking care of everything? Her trunks contained thousands of things which nobody in the house but herself would have thought of preserving. Once I lost my temper with her. This was how it happened. One day after luncheon I poured myself out a glass of kvass, and then dropped the decanter, and so stained the tablecloth. "'Go and call Natalia, that she may come and see what her darling has done,' said Mamma. Natalia arrived, and shook her head at me when she saw the damage I had done, but Mamma whispered something in her ear, threw a look at myself, and then left the room." I was just skipping away, in the sprightliest mood possible, when Natalia darted out upon me from behind the door, with the tablecloth in her hand, and, catching hold of me, rubbed my face hard with the stained part of it, repeating, "'Don't thou go and spoil tablecloths any more!' I struggled hard, and roared with temper. "'What?' I said to myself, as I fled to the drawing-room in a mist of tears. "'To think that Natalia Savishna, just plain Natalia, should say thou to me, and rub my face with a wet tablecloth, as though I were a mere servant-boy. It is abominable. 
Seeing my fury, Natalia departed, while I continued to strut about and plan how to punish the bold woman for her offence. Yet not more than a few moments had passed when Natalia returned, and, stealing to my side, began to comfort me. "'Hush, then, my love. Do not cry. Forgive me my rudeness. It was wrong of me. You will pardon me, my darling, will you not? There, there, that's a dear.' and she took from her handkerchief a cornet of pink paper, containing two little cakes and a grape, and offered it me with a trembling hand. I could not look the kind old woman in the face, but, turning aside, took the paper, while my tears flowed the faster, though from love and shame now, not from anger. CHAPTER fourteen, THE PARTING On the day after the events described, the carriage and the luggage-cart drew up to the door at noon. Nicola, dressed for the journey, with his breeches tucked into his boots and an old overcoat belted tightly about him with a girdle, got into the cart and arranged cloaks and cushions on the seats. When he thought that they were piled high enough, he sat down on them, but finding them still unsatisfactory, jumped up and arranged them once more. "'Nikola Dmitrievich, would you be so good as to take Master's dressing-case with you?' said Papa's valet, suddenly standing up in the carriage. "'It won't take much room.' "'You should have told me before, Michael Ivanitch,' answered Nikola snappishly, as he hurled a bundle with all his might to the floor of the cart. "'Good gracious! Why, when my head is going round like a whirlpool, there you come along with your dressing-case!' and he lifted his cap to wipe away the drops of perspiration from his sunburnt brow. The courtyard was full of bareheaded peasants in caftans or simple shirts, women clad in the national dress and wearing striped handkerchiefs, and barefooted little ones, the latter holding their mother's hands or crowding round the entrance steps. All were chattering among themselves as they stared at the carriage. One of the postilions, an old man dressed in a winter cap and cloak, took hold of the pole of the carriage, and tried it carefully, while the other postilion, a young man in a white blouse with pink gussets on the sleeves and a black lamb's wool cap, which he kept cocking first on one side and then on the other as he arranged his flaxen hair, laid his overcoat upon the box, slung the reins over it, and cracked his thonged whip as he looked now at his boots and now at the other drivers, where they stood, greasing the wheels of the cart, one driver lifting up each wheel in turn, and the other driver applying the grease. Tired post-horses of various hues stood lashing away flies with their tails near the gate, some stamping their great hairy legs, blinking their eyes, and dozing, some leaning wearily against their neighbors, and others cropping the leaves and stalks of dark green fern which grew near the entrance steps. Some of the dogs were lying, panting in the sun, while others were slinking under the vehicles to lick the grease from the wheels. The air was filled with a sort of dusty mist, and the horizon was lilac-gray in color, though no clouds were to be seen. A strong wind from the south was raising volumes of dust from the roads and fields, shaking the poplars and birch-trees in the garden, and whirling their yellow leaves away. I myself was sitting at a window, and waiting impatiently for these various preparations to come to an end. As we sat together by the drawing-room table, to pass the last few moments en famille, it never occurred to me that a sad moment was impending. On the contrary, 
the most trivial thoughts were filling my brain. Which driver was going to drive the carriage, and which the cart? Which of us would sit with Papa, and which with Karl Ivanitch? Why must I be kept forever muffled up in a scarf and padded boots? Am I so delicate? Am I likely to be frozen? I thought to myself. I wish it would all come to an end, and we could take our seats and start. To whom shall I give the list of the children's linen? asked Natalia Savishna of Mamma as she entered the room with a paper in her hand and her eyes red with weeping. Give it to Nicola, and then return to say good-bye to them, replied Mamma. The old woman seemed about to say something more, but suddenly stopped short, covered her face with her handkerchief, and left the room. Something seemed to prick at my heart when I saw that gesture of hers, but impatience to be off soon drowned all other feeling, and I continued to listen indifferently to Papa and Mamma as they talked together. They were discussing subjects which evidently interested neither of them. What must be bought for the house? What would Princess Sophia or Madame Julie say? Would the roads be good? And so forth. Foka entered, and in the same tone, and with the same air, as though he were announcing luncheon, said, The carriages are ready. I saw Mamma tremble and turn pale at the announcement, just as though it were something unexpected. Next, Foka was ordered to shut all the doors of the room. This amused me highly, as though we needed to be concealed from someone. When everyone else was seated, Foka took the last remaining chair. Scarcely, however, had he done so, when the door creaked and everyone looked that way. Natalia Savishna entered hastily, and, without raising her eyes, sat down on the same chair as Foka. I can see them before me now, Foka's bald head and wrinkled, set face, and beside him a bent, kind figure in a cap from beneath which a few gray hairs were straggling. The pair settled themselves together on the chair, but neither of them looked comfortable. I continued preoccupied and impatient. In fact, the ten minutes during which we sat there with closed doors seemed to me an hour. At last, everyone rose, made the sign of the cross, and began to say goodbye. Papa embraced Mama and kissed her again and again. But enough, he said presently. We are not parting forever. No, but it is so, so sad, replied Mama, her voice trembling with emotion. When I heard that faltering voice, and saw those quivering lips and tear-filled eyes, I forgot everything else in the world. I felt so ill and miserable that I would gladly have run away rather than bid her farewell. I felt, too, that when she was embracing Papa, she was embracing us all. She clasped Boloda to her several times and made the sign of the cross over him, after which I approached her, thinking that it was my turn. Nevertheless, she took him again and again to her heart and blessed him. Finally, I caught hold of her and, clinging to her, wept, wept, thinking of nothing in the world but my grief. As we passed out to take our seats, other servants pressed round us in the hall to say good-bye. Yet their requests to shake hands with us, their resounding kisses on our shoulders, the fashion in which inferiors salute their superiors in Russia, 
and the odor of their greasy heads only excited in me a feeling akin to impatience with these tiresome people. The same feeling made me bestow nothing more than a very cross kiss upon Natalia's cap when she approached to take leave of me. It is strange that I should still retain a perfect recollection of these servants' faces, and be able to draw them with the most minute accuracy in my mind, while Mama's face and attitude escape me entirely. It may be that it is because at that moment I had not the heart to look at her closely. I felt that if I did so, our mutual grief would burst forth too unrestrainedly. I was the first to jump into the carriage and to take one of the hinder seats. The high back of the carriage prevented me from actually seeing her, yet I knew by instinct that Mama was still there. "'Shall I look at her again or not?' I said to myself. "'Well, just for the last time,' and I peeped out towards the entrance steps. Exactly at that moment, Mama, moved by the same impulse, came to the opposite side of the carriage and called me by name. Hearing her voice behind me, I turned round, but so hastily that our heads knocked together. She gave a sad smile and kissed me convulsively for the last time. When we had driven away a few paces, I determined to look at her once more. The wind was lifting the blue handkerchief from her head as, bent forward and her face buried in her hands, she moved slowly up the steps. Foka was supporting her. Papa said nothing as he sat beside me. I felt breathless with tears, felt a sensation in my throat as though I were going to choke. Just as we came out onto the open road, I saw a white handkerchief waving from the terrace. I waved mine in return, and the action of so doing calmed me a little. I still went on crying, but the thought that my tears were a proof of my affection helped to soothe and comfort me. After a little while I began to recover, and to look with interest at objects which we passed, and at the hindquarters of the led horse which was trotting on my side. I watched how it would swish its tail, how it would lift one hoof after the other, how the driver's thong would fall upon its back, and how all its legs would then seem to jump together, and the back band with the rings on it to jump too, the whole covered with the horse's foam. Then I would look at the rolling stretches of ripe corn, at the dark ploughed fields where ploughs and peasants and horses with foals were working, at their footprints, and at the box of the carriage to see who was driving us, until, though my face was still wet with tears, my thoughts had strayed far from her with whom I had just parted, parted, perhaps, forever. Yet ever and again something would recall her to my memory, I remembered, too, how, the evening before, I had found a mushroom under the birch-trees, how Lubochka had quarrelled with Katenka as to whose it should be, and how they had both of them wept when taking leave of us. I felt sorry to be parted from them, and from Natalia Savishna, and from the birch-tree avenue, and from Foka. Yes, even the horrid Mimi I longed for. I longed for everything at home. And poor Mama the tears rushed to my eyes again. Yet even this mood passed away before long. CHAPTER Fifteen, CHILDHOOD Happy, happy, never-returning time of childhood! How can we help loving and dwelling upon its recollections? 
They cheer and elevate the soul, and become to one a source of higher joys. Sometimes, when dreaming of bygone days, I fancy that, tired out with running about, I have sat down, as of old, in my high armchair by the tea-table. It is late, and I have long since drunk my cup of milk. My eyes are heavy with sleep as I sit there and listen. How could I not listen, seeing that Mamma is speaking to somebody, and that the sound of her voice is so melodious and kind? How much its echoes recall to my heart! With my eyes veiled with drowsiness, I gaze at her wistfully. Suddenly she seems to grow smaller and smaller, and her face vanishes to a point. Yet I can still see it, can still see her as she looks at me and smiles. Somehow it pleases me to see her grown so small. I blink and blink, yet she looks no larger than a boy reflected in the pupil of an eye. Then I rouse myself, and the picture fades. Once more I half-close my eyes, and cast about to try and recall the dream, but it has gone. I rise to my feet, only to fall back comfortably into the armchair. There, you are falling asleep again, little Nicholas, says Mamma. You had better go to bye-bye. No, I won't go to sleep, Mamma, I reply, though almost inaudibly, for pleasant dreams are filling all my soul. The sound sleep of childhood is weighing my eyelids down, and for a few moments I sink into slumber and oblivion until awakened by someone. I feel in my sleep as though a soft hand were caressing me. I know it by the touch, and, though still dreaming, I seize hold of it and press it to my lips. Everyone else has gone to bed, and only one candle remains burning in the drawing-room. Mamma has said that she herself will wake me. She sits down on the arm of the chair in which I am asleep, with her soft hand stroking my hair, and I hear her beloved, well-known voice say in my ear, Get up, my darling, it is time to go bye-bye. No envious gaze sees her now. She is not afraid to shed upon me the whole of her tenderness and love. I do not wake up, yet I kiss and kiss her hand. Get up, then, my angel. She passes her other arm round my neck, and her fingers tickle me as they move across it. The room is quiet and in half-darkness, but the tickling has touched my nerves, and I begin to awake. Mamma is sitting near me, that I can tell, and touching me. I can hear her voice and feel her presence. This at last rouses me to spring up, to throw my arms around her neck, to hide my head in her bosom, and to say with a sigh, Ah, dear, darling Mamma, how much I love you! She smiles her sad, enchanting smile, takes my head between her two hands, kisses me on the forehead, and lifts me onto her lap. Do you love me so much, then? she says. Then, after a few moments' silence, she continues, And you must love me always, and never forget me. If your mamma should no longer be here, will you promise never to forget her? Never, Nikolinka? And she kisses me more fondly than ever. "'Oh, but you must not speak so, darling Mamma, my own darling Mamma! I exclaim, as I clasp her knees, and tears of joy and love fall from my eyes. How, after scenes like this, I would go upstairs, 
and stand before the icons, and say with a rapturous feeling, God bless Papa and Mama, and repeat a prayer for my beloved mother, which my childish lips had learnt to lisp, the love of God and of her blending strangely in a single emotion. After saying my prayers, I would wrap myself up in the bedclothes. My heart would feel light, peaceful, and happy, and one dream would follow another. Dreams of what? They were all of them vague, but all of them full of pure love and of a sort of expectation of happiness. I remember, too, that I used to think about Karl Ivanitch and his sad lot. He was the only unhappy being whom I knew, and so sorry would I feel for him, and so much did I love him, that tears would fall from my eyes as I thought, May God give him happiness, and enable me to help him and to lessen his sorrow. I could make any sacrifice for him. Usually, also, there would be some favorite toy, a china dog or hare, stuck into the bed-corner behind the pillow, and it would please me to think how warm and comfortable and well cared for it was there. Also, I would pray God to make everyone happy, so that everyone might be contented, and also to send fine weather tomorrow for our walk. Then I would turn myself over on to the other side, and thoughts and dreams would become jumbled and entangled together, until at last I slept soundly and peacefully, though with a face wet with tears. Do in after-life the freshness and light-heartedness, the craving for love and for strength of faith, ever return which we experience in our childhood's years? What better time is there in our lives than when the two best of virtues, innocent gaiety and a boundless yearning for affection, are our sole objects of pursuit? Where now are our ardent prayers? Where now are our best gifts, the pure tears of emotion, which a guardian angel dries with a smile as he sheds upon us lovely dreams of ineffable childish joy. Can it be that life has left such heavy traces upon one's heart that those tears and ecstasies are forever vanished? Can it be that there remains to us only the recollection of them? End of chapter 15 Recorded December 4th, 2005 in Longmont, Colorado